Welcome to Fusion Church's Sermon of the Week. Fusion Church is located in Wakanda, Illinois. We exist to complete and multiply people who passionately follow Christ. For more information, visit www.fusionchurch.com. Let's dive into this week's sermon. Uh, We are going to dive into Matthew today uh, in full-on earnest. So we started out the series a couple weeks ago, and we're going to be in this for quite some time, uh, walking through the Gospel of Matthew. We started out kind of like talking about the end of the Gospel of Matthew and the, the idea of what this whole thing is leading up toward. And so we started out with the end of Gospel of Matthew, kind of with the idea of kind of like revealing what the end of the story is, tells you how to read the story, and tells you how to walk through it. So if you missed that, go back and listen to the podcast. Last week, I did a little bit of kind of like an intro to the Gospels. So it felt more like a classroom kind of environment last week. I was doing more of kind of like, here's some background information that might be helpful for you. And it was, uh, I was actually really encouraged by a number of people saying, hey, that was really helpful for me. I didn't know that. And that was, uh, so, uh, so, so I'm, glad that, I'm glad that we did that. Uh, and so if you missed that, go back and listen to it. We also gave out some handouts last week on how to read the Gospels and, and how, uh, specifically on the Gospel of Matthew. And so if you missed that, come and see me or see Meg. She's not here tonight, but see Meg, and then she can get you those handouts. Uh, We can email them to you so you can have those so you can follow along. So we're just going to pick up right now in the story of Matthew, all right? And here's where we're going to pick up in chapter two. Now, let me lay a little bit of the backstory before we pick up in chapter two. At this point in the gospel of Matthew, we've had our traditional Christmas story. The angels have appeared to Joseph and Mary And she is great with child. She has her baby. We have Emmanuel with us. We have all the fuzzies from all the Christmas, all the cute stuff. And now, like, uh, then we have the the magi or the wise men who come, uh, and they come, and they're trying to find this baby Jesus. Uh, And they, we, we learn that they have been looking at the stars. So more than likely, they were astrologers, uh, and they were, they were people who knew something about there was supposed to be a king that was going to be born in the land of Israel, and they were familiar with that whole idea, even if they didn't know all the details. And so something has happened in the heavens and the stars that has drawn them to this place. And so they come into Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, and they come expecting to find a king there. And what they find instead is another king who is not altogether happy about this announcement of a baby king. And so what happens is Herod kind of like tries to play a trick and says, you guys go and find him. And when you find him, come back and tell me where he, where he is. And so the wise men or the magi set out. They go and they find Jesus. Contrary to popular belief at Christmas time, they don't actually show up to like the manger on Christmas Day. That's not what happened. It was probably months after the fact that they actually show up. Jesus maybe as much as six months uh, six months old, and he's there, and they finally find out where Jesus is, and so they see Jesus, they bring him, they're the first people to worship Jesus. Think about that for a second. Foreigners, not from the land of Israel, are the first people to come and worship Jesus, and it literally says they worship him, and they presented these gifts to, to him, uh, and then they learn in a dream that, that Herod is actually going to try to kill this baby, and so that they should not go back, and so they leave. So that is right where we're going to enter into this story today. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13. When they had gone, talking about the Magi, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, 
Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And so he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where they stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel is weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. What's happening there, just pause for a second, is, is Matthew is borrowing from a lament and a song of sorrow in the, in, the, in the book of Jeremiah, where there was in, in ancient times weeping because children had died. He's borrowing from that and saying that applies then and that now applies here. So he borrows this kind of lament. And then verse 19, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. And he said, get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take this child's life are dead. So he got up, he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So it was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that in the next few minutes, um, you would use anything that comes out of my mouth, God, to build your people up and draw them closer to your heart. I pray, God, there won't be anything I would say to draw attention to, to myself, but only to point to you, Jesus, and to your kingdom. And I pray, God, that as I speak, Lord, that even then, God, you would be piercing hearts and, and encouraging hearts and reminding us of who you are and what you want to do in us, Lord. I pray all this in your name. Amen. It's crazy to think that in these few verses, there's about 10 verses here, this covers a span of almost 30 years in these verses. Think about the Gospel of Matthew. There's 28 chapters, or yeah, 28 chapters, right? In the, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, here in these 10 verses is 30 years sandwiched. We've got the birth of Jesus, the escape to Egypt, and then 25, 28, almost 30 years of Jesus living in Nazareth covered in these verses. There's so much going on there that I was like, I wish I knew about. Like, anyone else? Like, man, I wish I knew what else was going on. But that's it. This is all it has to say about those years. It's crazy to think how much is condensed into these verses. The next thing that happens right after these verses is uh, uh, there's John the Baptist and then Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist when he's 30 years old. So it just skips like all of this time. And it's easy just to think, well, that wasn't important. But sometimes when we read scripture, it's important for us to look at what's not there as much as what's actually there. So what's not there sometimes will tell us something that we need to pay attention to. So here's one thing I want us to see right here at the beginning. The, the Gospel of Matthew is not primarily a book that we read for just personal devotion. Like, we, we get it out, and we're looking for a word from God today, and we use it for personal devotion. It can be that, and it is that, 
But what the, what the Gospel of Matthew is, it's a persuasive argument about who Jesus is. So the Gospel of Matthew is trying to convince you that Jesus is the King. And so when you read the Gospel of Matthew, you can get kind of personal devotional things out of it, but you've got to understand what Matthew is trying to convince you of. The things that will come out for you and be relevant and personal to you will be tied to that theme, okay, that Jesus is this king. And we've already kind of unpacked some of these themes. But here is a kind of the main idea that Matthew is trying to communicate. And it's, it's, really, it's really cool. We're going to see it really clearly in a minute. That Jesus is not just king in general, but that Jesus is the new Moses. That Jesus is the new Moses. He's not just the new Moses. He's like new and better. And here's what we mean by that. He's going to be the leader of a new people and he's going to be representative of Israel. We're going to see that really clear in just a second. So Matthew is trying really hard to, to show us that Jesus is the new Moses. And he does this in all kinds of ways throughout the Gospel of Matthew. So for example, there are five major sections of teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. And they they're, uh, correspond really nicely to the five books of the old, first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis through... Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. You guys got it? See, the first five books are what's known as the Torah. So Matthew is really trying to show that Jesus is delivering a new way of living to a new people. And then he like goes crazy with this stuff right here at the beginning, showing how Jesus is a new Moses. In this little story that I just read, we have tons of parallels with Moses. So for example, Jesus is born at a time when there is an evil king in charge. Moses, go back to the beginning of Exodus, all the way back towards the beginning of your Bible, is born in a time where there is an evil king in charge called Pharaoh. Got it? So this clear kind of parallel. And Moses is in, or Pharaoh is enslaving his people. Jesus is going to take his people out of spiritual slavery. So we're going to see that that's what's going to happen this month in this gospel. Jesus, when he's born, is uh, the king attempts to kill him. When he's born, the king attempts to kill him. What happens to Moses? When Moses is born, Pharaoh is trying to kill all of the Israelite children that are living in the land of Egypt because they've grown to be too many people. And so he's like, we're going to take all the Israelites out, right? See how these parallels are, are right there? Here's the next one. Jesus is miraculously saved through an angel's warning, tells the family, go to Egypt. Moses is miraculously saved by being put in a basket in the water and floated down the Nile River and then miraculously ends up growing up in the household of Pharaoh. Do you see how, how this is like, how um, these parallels are crazy? Okay, here's the next one. Jesus goes into exile in Egypt, okay? So when this whole thing happens, when, when uh, Herod's trying to kill him, he goes to exile in Egypt. Moses, once he learns about his identity, decides that he's going to murder one of the Egyptians for beating a fellow countryman, what does Moses do? Moses goes into exile in Egypt. You see? Like, this is like so obvious. Then, this is, this is even better, guys. Jesus' family is told to go back. And it, and, and it says that they were told that the people who were trying to kill him are no longer living. They're dead, so it's safe to go back. Matthew, uh, or I'm sorry, Matthew explains that. The same exact thing using the same exact wording is told to Moses 
when it's time for him to go back to Pharaoh to begin to let the people go. Do you see this? So Matthew is like really trying to show you how Jesus is this new Moses. And he's not just Moses, he's more than that. So it says, uh, he quotes from the Old Testament from the book of Hosea, and it says that Israel, my true son, has been called out of Egypt. And he uses that in reference specifically to Jesus. But the interesting thing is, in the Old Testament, that was a reference to all of the people of Israel. So what's Matthew trying to do? He's trying to say that Jesus represents all of the people of Israel. This is, if you want to get really nerdy about some doctrinal stuff, this is the doctrine of recapitulation. Like, so Jesus does everything where humanity failed, he does it better. And everything that is where Israel failed, he does it better. So he lives his life and everything through his life was fulfilled that wasn't fulfilled before. You guys good? Are we okay with big words? We can do this. We're going to be okay. All right. So he does everything, but write it in the sky in bright letters and say, Jesus is the new Moses. Like it's the only way, if you were a Jewish person reading this back then, you'd be like, oh my gosh, he's saying Jesus is the new Moses. And he's saying more than that, he's saying he's better than Moses. The thing about Moses is not just that he was an important person, It's what Moses meant to the people. He was the person who led people out of slavery and formed a new people. It's his teaching that teaches the people how to live and how they should live as a kingdom of priests. Uh, It's his his teaching who, uh, and the way he led them that shows them how to live. And so that's exactly what this is going to be. And how we should read the gospel of Matthew is that Jesus, just like Moses, is teaching people how we're meant to live in this, in this new kingdom that he's forming. And, it, and as we look at the life of Jesus and what happens to Jesus, we should be looking and saying, how does that relate to me? See, oftentimes we read the Gospels and we look at the life of Jesus and we think of it solely in terms of what he did for me 2,000 years ago. But the reality is that is true. Jesus did things for you 2,000 years ago. But he also lived a life in a way that demonstrates to you how we are meant to live. And there are lessons that we can learn if we lean in and look at how he lived his life that will help us understand how we live our lives. So, while Matthew's main point is to show who Jesus is, he wants us to learn from his life and about how the kingdom of God actually works. And he wants us to learn from that and lean in a little bit. So that's what we're going to do for the next couple minutes. That was a long introduction, but I don't have a lot on the back end of this. So here are the things I think we're supposed to lean into here and actually learn. And here's the first one. That the kingdom of God comes with opposition. That the kingdom of God comes with opposition. Jesus comes into the world. And his coming into the world is supposed to be a sign that the peace, the shalom of God has come on earth. That, the, that God, just like he reigns in heaven, is now about to reign on earth. He comes and it's supposed to be a trigger for us of, of the healing and hope that the earth has been longing for. It's the, it's the hopes fulfilled of people longing forever, longing since the beginning of time for salvation. And when that actually happens, when Jesus comes on the scene, it is immediately met with evil opposition. It's like right here at the beginning of this story, we have a clash of kingdoms. 
We have the kingdom of God coming in the form of a baby. And we have the kingdom of evil personified in an evil king. And right here at the beginning of the story in the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to see these two kingdoms clash with one another. As a matter of fact, the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to see these kingdoms clash. The kingdom, God's kingdom and the kingdom of evil. And that, and that oftentimes comes in kind of um, more overt spiritual things like demons and sickness. But a lot of times it comes through, through people doing bad things. And that is exactly what happens in this story. It couldn't be more clear. I mean, if like the picture here that we see couldn't be more clear. An innocent child called to come and bring peace on earth and goodwill to men. And a king with all of the power using violence to maintain his throne. Do you see this really stark contrast? It's black and white. It's dark and light. It's like these forces are coming together here. See, Herod, a little bit of backstory here, was a ruthless king. Outside of the Gospels, there's all kinds of information about the kind of king that Herod was. He killed all of his enemies. Anyone who he thought was standing up to him that was against his power, he killed. Including one of his wives, who supposedly was his favorite wife, all of his in-laws, and two of his sons, just so that he could keep his power. That's crazy to think about. This is the kind of man this person was. So here's the reality. This is a sad, sad reality. The fact that he would kill some children down in Bethlehem wouldn't have made the front page news for Herod. This was just what he did everywhere. It was what he did. It was just the kind of person he was. So, so there, the record of this being in the Bible mentions it because it's significant that it's tied to this specific event. And actually, just so you know, if you want to get a scale of what happened here, um, most scholars believe that Bethlehem at the time of Jesus, there was probably about a thousand people. That's kind of the high end of the population. And if you kind of do the statistical analysis and some stuff like that, it's probably about 20 male boys that are killed in Bethlehem around this time, which is just terrible, like when you think about it. I mean, just, just awful. It is humanity at its absolute worst, right? when it should be worshiping a king who's coming to bring out the best in humanity. And so here, God's intervention in history, him coming to save, is met. And here's the interesting thing, guys. This is what I love about the Bible. It doesn't tie a a neat and tidy bow on things and tell us, here's how it all works. When this bad thing happens, this good thing happens, and it all just equals out. It just kind of says, look, Jesus was saved and these people were not. And it gives us the reality that evil forces are at play at all times, opposing God's good in the world. The text doesn't try to explain how it all works. God intervenes and saves Jesus, but yet this particular evil man brings ruin and death. And it doesn't try to resolve this tension for us, but it does reveal this truth that whatever, uh, whenever the kingdom is at work, wherever God is trying to break in, there will be opposition. Wherever God is trying to break in, wherever God is doing a new work, there will be opposition. Guys, sometimes we forget because we live in a world where we see evil all the time that the way that the Bible talks about the world that we live in is that there's a spirit of the power of the air that is influencing things that are going on here on earth. 
And that evil, the evil that we see with our eyes is not just the product of the evil humanity. It's the evil that does not want God to succeed on this earth. And I don't have all of the answers for why God doesn't just snap his fingers and say to be done with it all. I really, I really don't know. But what I know is, what is really clear in this story is that the evil that exists is not God bringing. God's trying to save the world from the evil. But humanity is resisting it. And God just, he trusts us in in such incredible ways that he's even willing to let us make these kinds of terrible mistakes. And I've seen this over and over again, that wherever God, where the kingdom of God is trying to break in, it's so often met with incredible opposition. Just recently, uh, a friend uh, came and shared some things with me, and he gave me permission to share this, but I don't want to give away too much information here. That they were struggling with an incredible amount of anxiety and frustration about a particular issue. And that anxiety and that frustration was, and fear was causing them to really hide in shame. Uh, and that, and that, they, um, uh, that, that there was just so much shame around the issue that it was causing them to want to withdraw from community and not be around church, not be around people. Uh, and so they took this monumental, this huge step in coming and talking to me and said, you know what, I, I have this issue. I'm, I have this fear and this anxiety around this, this thing. And, and it, it's just affecting me so much. It's causing me to want to withdraw. And, and I said, you know what, it's so great that you shared that with me. Like just even confessing that and saying it out loud is so helpful. Like, because now we get to call it out and see it in the light and, and we can deal with it as it actually really is. And so uh, it was just such an incredible thing. The person texted me the next day, oh my gosh, I feel so much better. Just the fact that someone else knows about this, it's not all on my own. And I was like, that's great. This like healing work of God went for on for two weeks. And then all of a sudden something really terrible happened. This fear that they thought that had never happened in years actually happened all of a sudden out of nowhere, right? Out of nowhere. I'm using major air quotes here. All of a sudden, this thing that this person was afraid of, which had not happened in a long time, all of a sudden out of nowhere actually happens. And all of a sudden it sends this person into a tailspin of fear because they see, oh my gosh, uh, my my fears were founded. All the things I was afraid of are actually true. Now I have the perspective of being on the outside of that, of saying, do you see how the enemy is trying to steal the good work that God was doing in you? Like you just stepped out and trying to overcome this fear and this thing that you had. And like, as soon as you stepped out, you started feeling good. That's the kingdom of God trying to break in and bring healing. And the moment that you did that, something came along and tried to steal that right off the bat. My guess is that you all have experienced that in some time in your life. There's been something Something that you know God did, that God was asking you to step into a new territory, to lay aside some kind of addiction, to maybe like step out in giving or something like that. And the moment that you stepped out, you experienced this, oh my gosh, this is so good. And then just so quickly after, we're immediately met with opposition. Anyone else have experienced that? I mean, even guys just last week, I mean, Jen and Jen shared it a little bit, but I don't think that you guys realize every single time, Every single time Jen and I have ever tried to get away from this like Wakanda area for a break, it has been met with incredible opposition. A sick kid, something breaking down. And the few times where there hasn't been an opera that hasn't happened, we've come back to mass chaos. It's like every time we try to go after and rest and experience God's goodness, the enemy goes, no, you won't. And then we feel like we're coming back and we feel refreshed and we're good. We come back. The enemy's like, no, you didn't. We're going right back to where we were. 
I mean, I've seen this, this cycle play out over and over again. But here's the thing. If we know that when the kingdom of God breaks in, that we will experience opposition, it actually steals the power from the enemy to do what he wants to do in our lives. Like, if I begin to say, well, I know he's going to try and steal this from me, so I'm going to go on the offensive rather than wait for something bad to happen, it changes the atmosphere. So here's the thing I'm learning. I'm starting to go, where am I, where am I getting opposition in my life? I bet that's a place that God's getting ready to break through. Where is this thing happening? I bet that's a place where God... So when this person comes and says, now I had these fears and I had these doubts and I had all these things, and, and now I feel, like it's, I feel like it's being attacked, I go, guess what? It's because you're about to experience a new level and freedom of intimacy with God that you didn't know was about to happen. It's about to happen. I can see it because it's being fought against right now. Isn't that great, guys? Like, man, the enemy just can't win unless we give him the territory. Like, we just know if you say, I'm going to fight against my porn addiction, he is going to come against you, and he's going to somehow come against that weakness and try to bring pornography into your life. It's going to happen. So here's what you do. You say, I will not stand for this in my life. I'm going to get one person who's going to hold me accountable every single day, and we're going to pray together. We're going to overcome this thing together. You steal the power of the enemy when we recognize how he's working. We don't focus on what he does, but we shouldn't be ignorant of how he works. And this little thing right here, this little, this little story here, uh, shows us how he tries to come against areas of breakthrough. So here's what I'd say. Look for places of opposition in your life and say, thank you so much, Satan. I appreciate what you're trying to do here, but it shows me exactly what God's going to try to do, and he's bigger than you, so see ya. Here's here's the second thing I would say about that. What do you do if you find yourself in that place of opposition? You listen to the voice of God. You listen to the voice of God. In this story, Jesus is saved because he was alerted to the fact that this was about to happen. And then they listen to the voice of God and uproot their family in the middle of the night. Do you guys realize this story? This This is a crazy story. They have a dream. And in the middle of the night, get up and uproot their family and go into Egypt. My guess is they didn't have a luxury palace waiting for them in Egypt, that they weren't planning for a trip. This was a major inconvenience, but that act of obedience saved their lives. So if you find yourself in a position where you're experiencing opposition from the the kingdom of darkness, whatever it might be, look for what is God saying? And it could be something that God said to you from his word that you know, you go back and say, I know God said this to me. I know here is his promise here. I know is what he said. Or it could just be a prophetic word or some, a word that, uh, a promise or something that you know is true. You go back to that. A lot of times when I find myself going, God, I don't know what you're doing right now. Help me understand this. I go back to what is the last thing that God said? What's the last thing that God said to me? What's the last kind of kairos moment I had from Scripture? What is, what's the last word that I heard? And I anchor myself there and say, God, are you done with that yet? And if he's not, then I just go back there. We too quickly want to move on to the next thing. God's not in a hurry. I might preach. Be careful. I just spent five days with an, or a, couple, a couple days with an awesome church. I'm fired up. All right, here's the second thing. The kingdom starts small and insignificantly. The kingdom starts small and insignificantly. 
The first part of Jesus' life, he is a refugee. The first part of Jesus' life, he is a refugee. He's not born in a palace. He's a child that's fleeing for his life, not able to have his home in his homeland. He's rejected by his own people, yet worshipped by foreign kings. He's accepted in a foreign land, but rejected in his homeland. The, the defin- definition of a refugee is someone who's fleeing political or religious oppression. That Jesus is fleeing religious and political oppression. There is a king who's trying to kill him because he's afraid that he will be the king. And not just any king, the king of God's kingdom. And so he goes and to a place that's not his home. He begins his life in exile with no place to call his home. He is a king of a world and of a people who are rejecting him. Guys, do you realize like, how crazy this is? Like, like, people don't dream this stuff up. Like, this would not be the way I would be like, let's write a story about how God comes in and, and saves the whole planet Earth. How about let's start it with a king who's rejected by his own people and has to live in obscurity for 30 years. That sounds like a really good and interesting story. Like, like guys, this is just crazy stuff. And it's going to be an important theme for the community that Jesus is building. As Jesus starts to preach and teach about what the kingdom of God is like and how his kingdom should be, he begins to talk to them about how they should not live easily in this world. That his kingdom is going to have values that are different than the kingdom of the world. That there will be citizens or sojourners or exiles. There, it goes on later on in the, in, the, in the Bible to talk about how we're citizens of heaven. We're citizens of a foreign country. Jesus is like teaching his whole life. He, he's kind of like basing what he's talking about out of personal experience of being a person who's misplaced from his homeland. Like this isn't just metaphorical for Jesus. This was a reality for Jesus. That he is this person that starts with a place that's not his home. He starts in this obscure place. And when Jesus does return home, he can't go back to the place that he was born in Bethlehem. He has to go and find a new home. So Matthew says this, that he withdrew to the the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Now here's an interesting fact. The Old Testament never prophesies that the Messiah would be born in Nazareth or live in Nazareth. It never refers to the Messiah as a Nazarene. So many people look at that and are like, "Um, Matthew, where'd you get that from? And actually, a lot of scholars have said, look, the reality is that Matthew really knew his Old Testament Bible really well. He's quoting it left and right. He wasn't like mistaken. And actually, even the way he, he makes this quote from the Old Testament is different than how, the other ways that he introduces Old Testament Scripture. So most scholars think that what he's doing is some kind of play on words here. That he's introducing kind of a play on words to, to get us to think a little bit more differently. And here's what I think. I've, I've, I've done tons of research on this, and here's where I've landed. Uh, Nazareth, the thing that's significant about Nazareth is that it's not significant. <laughs> As a matter of fact, you remember this this thing where Jesus has this exchange with the guy and he says to Jesus, like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's because Nazareth was the backwoods. It was a know-nothing town. 
And, and actually, what, what many scholars are beginning to think is that, was, that Nazareth was kind of like a slang term for hillbilly or hick, right? It was a forgotten place. No one comes from there. We forget that place. And so, so the idea here is that uh, what, what Matthew is doing is taking the string of Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah who was rejected by his people who on the outside didn't have any appearance where anybody should pay attention to him, where he wasn't somehow overwhelming with this person. We think of Jesus as being like this winsome, awesome personality. The Old Testament prophecies say the exact opposite. And actually in the New Testament, we see Jesus offending people all the time. He does stuff as a pastor I would never do as a pastor. Like, I'm just being honest. Maybe I should start to do more what he did and things would be different around here. I don't know. But, but he does, like, he does crazy stuff. Like, so much so that he is rejected. He's overlooked by people for 30 years. No one thinks that this person is the king of kings. He lives in obscurity, right? So what Matthew, I think, is doing here is saying he was nobody. The scripture said he was a nobody. It said he would be a nobody, and it just proved the fact that he was. And so Jesus is born in obscurity. He lives as a refugee, and he returns to a podunk, middle-of-nowhere place. I've got a couple pictures here. Here's the first one. This is a picture of the village of Nazareth. So it's an older one. It's now much more developed. But this is close to what Jesus would have seen when he was coming up to the village for the first time. This is crazy. To think. I don't know why this guy this gets me. This gets me all excited. Jesus would have played in these trees and on those hills with his friends. He would have attended a synagogue in one of those buildings. His house would have been under one of those buildings. That is the homeland of Jesus. He returns there. But the thing about it is there's absolutely nothing special. Is maybe 500 to 1,000 people lived there when Jesus lived there. It's a know-nothing, insignificant village. He would have spent his first five years and then some going to the synagogue. He would have learned how to read and write, studying the Torah. So he would, go, he would be going as a Jewish boy to the synagogue, and the teachers there, the rabbis, would be teaching him how to read and write. Just from the, and so by the time that Jesus was 12 years old, he has all of the Old Testament, the Torah, he has it all memorized. He, he knows it. So much so that we learn in, in the Gospel of Luke that when Jesus shows up and he begins to tell the rabbis off, he begins to tell the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, he knows the law better than they know the law. And so he, he spends his time just studying God's word. And as he gets older, he would have started helping out with the, with the family business. He, he would have started helping his dad. Let's go to the next one. This picture right here, is believed to be the home that Jesus would have grown up in. This is insane to me, guys. I mean, just absolutely insane to me. So I've got a, I've got a good friend who is a biblical scholar and does some archaeology kind of stuff. And, and, and what they've said is that this was built into the, the, the side of a mountain. It was built by someone who was a builder. In the Bible, we learn that Joseph, Jesus' father, was a carpenter, but it doesn't actually mean carpenter. It just means builder. The word is tecton, which means builder. So more than likely, they worked with stones and they worked with wood and whatever materials they had. This is very clearly a house of a person who was a tecton, who was a builder, whose name was Joseph. 
And it's very clearly whoever lived there, lived there in the first century. And then within a hundred years, Christians begin to have pilgrimages to this one place. Guys, this is where Jesus lived. The, the next, go to the next slide. There is this huge, incredible tomb right there that they think was built by a master stone builder. And that this would have been the tomb where Joseph, the father of Jesus, the earthly father of Jesus, would have been laid right in this place. And it's built right into the house. So we're looking at the place where Jesus, Jesus probably, guys, this is insane to me. He probably had his own hands on that stone right there, building it for his father. Why is this important? Because it's not important. <laughs> because it's insignificant. Because Jesus wasn't out doing miracle things and doing all of these crazy, incredible things, jumping off buildings and showing off his power. He was in the synagogue studying God's word and he was going to work with his dad. Actually, if you go to the next plate, what, what most people think uh, is there's this map here. Um, uh, see where Nazareth is at the top and there's this other word up there. It says Sepphoris. Sepphoris is a city that had been destroyed by a king. And so they're beginning to build it, right? Build it back up by the time of Jesus. And they began to employ workers and builders from around the region. So here's likely what happened. Joseph and Jesus walked four miles every day to this town called Sepphoris to work and build, build houses, to build buildings, to build synagogues, to build up the palace of the king. He had a secondary palace there. They would have walked to and from that place every day for every day except for Sabbath. Four miles there, four miles back. What's significant about that is that it's not significant. For 25 to 30 years, Jesus lived normal, boring, mundane life, just like me and you. He didn't change diapers like some of you moms. Like, he didn't deal with customer service issues like some of you. Like, he didn't do all those things, but he just lived a normal, everyday life a faithful student of God's word, and a hardworking son. This is a key theme in Jesus' life, that the kingdom of God doesn't come with a big bang. It comes like a mustard seed. It comes like yeast working in the dough. It comes like seeds spread out in the field. It comes like a pearl, small but valuable, hidden in the seal. It's not showy. It's not flashy. It's painfully small, and it's obscure but has the potency to change everything. And here's why that matters to us. As followers of Jesus, we believe that God can and does do incredible things in our lives and in our church. And we believe that not only about his big church and what he's doing in the world, but we believe that about this church. And we believe that God is doing great things. In the last few weeks, I've seen at least eight healings. I've seen God physically heal eight people. It has been incredible, guys. Like, it has just been so good just to see God answering promises. I have wept on the floor of my office and my home and this place over and over and hours and hours just waiting for God to do this kind of stuff. And it is becoming, I believe, more of the norm. We're seeing people come to faith in the last year who, for we had a little bit of a dry spell. This is going to start to happen more and more. God is going to do all of that. But so often it can feel like nothing is happening. So often it can feel like it's hard to see what God is doing at all. I told a friend this week, you know, I was like, I know that God's been doing stuff. But I'm tired of squinting with my eyes to see it. I'm ready to look with eyes wide open to see what God wants to do. But here's the thing. I cannot imagine the pressure of the promise on Jesus' life. 
You have this person who carries the weight literally of the world on his shoulders. Well, I guess no, it's figuratively, but he is carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. Like he, this is the salvation of all of the universe. He's got it all. And it doesn't appear that he couldn't do miracles early and then one day he can. We don't have a theology around that, so we shouldn't speculate. All we know is that he doesn't do it for 30 years. For 30 years, he's a faithful student of God's word and a faithful son in his family's household. He's nothing, there's nothing impressing. He's not doing any big things. And like, the deal is that God is not impressed with that stuff. He's not impressed with big things. He's not impressed with big beginnings. If anything, he says, watch out for that. And this reminder of Jesus should be so encouraging that when, some, when it feels like nothing is happening, actually God is preparing us for something. He's cultivating something in our hearts. When it feels like our prayers are not being answered, God is not silent. He is not deaf to your prayers. He is somehow working in a way that you cannot see. And I am so thankful for the things that I've learned in my life when the times God hasn't answered my prayers, but I'm also so thankful for the times he has. And we have a thing here where God is not, doesn't, he's not our genie in a bottle where we rub it and we get whatever we want. It doesn't work that way. God is making all things new and he knows better than us how it works. Like, so, so when it feels like nothing is happening, it's our job to trust him and to just be faithful and whatever our hands are have to put, be put to. The reality is some of us will never see the promises that we hope for. Worship team, you guys can come on up. Some of us will never see the promises fulfilled in our lifetime that we hope for. Hebrews chapter 11, there's a long cast of characters in Hebrews chapter 11. goes right into chapter 12 of people who hoped for a day when they would see the things that they longed for come true and didn't see it in their lifetime. But the thing that sustained them, there was something beyond what they would see in this lifetime that helped them to get through the day. But here's what I, th- I think we fear, is that most of us will just settle to say, well, I guess I'll just never see it in my lifetime. And so then what happens is we give up being faithful in our lifetime. That cannot be. That cannot be. We can't give up our faithfulness because of the delay that we discern. If that was the case, if, what if Jesus had said, you know what? When are you going to release me to do this, Father? When are you finally going to let me go and do the miracles and the things I want to do? I've had this dream in my heart. I see these gifts that the, that the wise men brought me. I know who I am. I know who I'm supposed to be. My mom has told me about how the shepherds came and worshipped. She told me about this. Like, when do I, when does it get to be my day? What if Jesus, I know this might seem blasphemous to think, but he was a human and always tempted just like you and I, right? That's that's what the Bible says about Jesus. So that means at some point in time, I'm going to guess that Jesus questioned, is this really the plan? Father, is this really what we're doing? We're going to take this long to do this thing and I'm going to live here? Like, anyone else ever have those kinds of questions? God, when will the breakthrough come for my finances or for my marriage or for my health or whatever it is? God, when will it finally happen? The only thing we have control over in any of it is our faithfulness in the waiting. That's the only thing we have control over is our faithfulness in the waiting. So here's what I would say, church. Don't give up on the things that you know God wants to do in your life. 
whether it's a biblical truth that you can just stand on or whether it's a promise that's been specifically spoken to you, do not give up on those promises. Be faithful in the waiting. Here's what I want to leave you thinking about. First thing is this. Where is there opposition in your life? What feels like you're just hitting a brick wall? I'm trying, I'm trying, and I feel like no matter what I do, it just feels hard. Where is there a brick wall? You feel like you're trying to press in. You feel like I know this is something that God wants for me. But I, I, and I feel it so strongly, but I just feel like I just, I'm just, just hitting a brick wall. Where is there opposition in your life? My guess is that many of you know right away this is the area. This is the area of opposition. This is the thing I feel like. The enemy is trying to take this thing that I know God wants to do. For some of you, maybe you don't necessarily feel that opposition. But you feel like the thing that God is doing in your life is so small and insignificant. It's taking so long to materialize that you've just begun to wonder, is God even there at all? Does he even care about any of this? So where is God asking you to wait on him and be faithful? Where is he asking you to wait on him and just be faithful? I want to give you a second to think about those things. Here's what I want to do. I want, us to, I want to give you an opportunity. These guys are just going to play and sing just a minute. For you to talk to God about what this is that's going on in your heart. What is the thing that's getting your attention from what I've been talking about? Where are experiencing opposition and you need to just stand firm? Where are you experiencing an area where you just need to be faithful while it feels like you're just in kind of this obscure nothing stage where things feel like they're in infancy? Just give you an opportunity to, to, to talk to the Lord about that while we're singing and praying. Why don't you stand with me? Lord, I just pray that while we sing in just the next minute, God, that you begin to move hearts and move minds to get on board with your kingdom come. Lord, I have no doubt that your kingdom desires to break through into our lives. And you desire to bring goodness. You, you desire to bring freedom. You desire to bring healing. It's just who you are. I have no doubt about it. There's no question that that's what you desire to do. So I pray, Lord, you just draw our attention to that in the next minute or so. We hope that you are encouraged by this week's sermon. For more information, visit us at our website, www.fusionchurch.com, or you could find us on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great week.